Hello, I'm Daniel. This is my podcast, Sharpening the Mind. I am a meditation teacher and also a labor activist in Kansas City, Missouri. I teach classes in meditation and Buddhism at the Rime Buddhist Center, as well as a few other places. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Uh, this is chapter three called The Mind. And it's on page 9, if you're following along in your book. So I'm just going to read the first few verses and, and comment on those. The restless, agitated mind, hard to protect, hard to control, the sage makes straight as a fletcher the shaft of an arrow. So that message is... What are we trying to do? Well, if we're trying to be sages, then what we're trying to do is straighten our minds. Um, I think of that metaphor that a lot of people like to use of the monkey mind. That is, you know, when you're paying attention to your thoughts, then you realize your thoughts are going here and there and there and there, like monkeys jumping through trees. So your thoughts, like you don't know how your thoughts are getting to where they're going, and you don't know how to slow them down either. That's what I think of. I guess because I've heard that metaphor enough times. That's what I think of when I think of the agitated mind. I think of monkeys running around in a tree. And I think um, anyone that has tried to do a meditation practice becomes aware very quickly of that habit our mind has. And that's what we're going to, that's most of what we're going to talk about in this chapter today. Um, So the sage makes the mind straight as a fletcher or the shaft of an arrow. So the Buddha is sort of expressing here that uh, this is like a calling. This this path we're on to, to straighten our minds, it's like a calling, as I assume a Fletcher's an arrow maker, but I didn't look it up. But just as that person has that as their vocation, this path, we should take it really seriously. It's really important. And we can think of it as we straighten our minds like a Fletcher straightens an arrow. I tried to think of uh, a more modern example, and I couldn't really come up with one. So I'm going to move on um, to verse 34. Like a fish out of water thrown on dry ground, this mind thrashes about trying to escape Mara's command. So we're talking about Uh, Mara is, if you don't know, it's sort of a a personification of, not a personification of evil like the devil, but of our our struggles and our failures, essentially. A personification of the world of suffering that we're trying to overcome. That's sort of, that's how I think of it anyway. And so, like a fish out of water thrown on dry ground, the mind thrashes about, right? That is where, again, our brain, our minds are going crazy. And this figure, Mara, we can think of it as a metaphor. I don't, I don't know that people think that Mara is a literal being. I don't know if they do or not. But it is just trying to put that into a, a container for us to more easily think about um, the, these temptations, which, if I'm really tempted by something... That's really, that's coming from me, really, right? That's not coming from, 
if I see ice cream and I really want the ice cream, well, that's not the ice cream's fault, right? And so, so really, I think of Mara as more of a metaphor because I don't think there's a an evil thing out there that's trying to trying to make us give in to temptation. I think we do that just fine. I think we do that just fine without uh, some sort of manipulation taking us there. Um, the story is that when the Buddha was sitting under the Bodhi tree, um, when he sat down to attain enlightenment, the story is that this being Mara appeared, and first he uh, conjured beautiful dancing girls to try to seduce the Buddha and get him to stop meditating, and that didn't work. So then Mara conjured, um, like, monsters and stuff to try to scare him into stopping, and that didn't work either. And the Buddha responded to this by uh, touching the ground. If you ever see a statue of the Buddha where he's touching the ground, that's what that represents. He, he touched the ground, and so in a literal and a spiritual mental way, he grounded himself, and he realized that these, these things he's seeing... They're not really here. They're not really here. And so that is how he emphasized his great determination. Um, I've never been meditating a long time and seen things that aren't there. But I've, I've heard people say that happens to them before. So it is maybe for some people a, a phenomenon that really happens. Um, so I wanted to ask if that sort of thing is part of anyone's experience. Um, the mind, hard to control, flighty, alighting where it wishes, one does well to tame. The disciplined mind brings happiness. The mind, hard to see, subtle, alighting where it wishes, the sage protects. The watched mind brings happiness. So, That's it. We're talking about a goal. One of our goals here is just well-being, just a sense of happiness and joy. And the Buddha is telling us, if we really pay attention, if we watch our minds, then there's happiness there. There's happiness there. So does our, does our experience match that? I think. Um, I think of. I tend to. If I have an uncomfortable encounter, uh, like an awkward situation, um, you probably imagine sometime in your life when you had an awkward situation, I, um, I dwell on it much too long. And you've probably got something like that, something you dwell on too long, regardless of uh, what that is. And so I think about that too long, and what's that do? Well, it makes me unhappy. Of course it does. And... I also think of, um, long ago before I was a meditator, I would have trouble sleeping sometimes. And I still, I wouldn't say I never do, but it is rare now. And in fact, sometimes I'm having trouble sleeping at night and then I remember, oh my gosh, I made up a reason to skip my meditation today and I skipped it. Oh my gosh, this, the same 20, within 24 hours, I have a direct direct consequence of my actions and when consequences are direct it's hopefully easier to learn from our mistakes but also I think um, 
this is a point I really love to make, and if I made it last time, I'm sorry. And if I make it again next time, I'm sorry. I really love to make this point, though. When we're not mindful, when we're distracted, when we are checked out and we're on autopilot, it's really easy for people to sell us things and manipulate us. And, of course, if people are manipulating us, well, there's all sorts of ways that can take our happiness, too, right? So, that, that is what I, what I think about with mindfulness. One of the things that I think people don't talk about very much is it's easy for people to sell you things if you're not really paying attention. And that's why, what does social media do? It assaults your senses until you're vulnerable. I believe that. I believe that's the plan of social media is to assault your senses until you're vulnerable and then sell you a shirt, right? So... That's sort of how we have that in the modern world. Um, and also, I think a thing that contributes to that that's, that's really common in the world these days is if your attention's fractured, if you're not mindful, and if also you have this extra thing, and that is uh, if you feel like you're not good enough for whatever reason. It's another, that's another thing that we tend to hold on to sometimes, and that contributes to also people being able to manipulate you and sell you things, right? If you think you're not good enough, then maybe that will make me make me good enough. And I know that sort of uh, being down on yourself is a really common thing in the modern world, I think. I think um, historically maybe people had really close-knit communities that are just hard to have in the modern world for whatever reason, for probably all sorts of reasons. But I think those uh, sort of insulated people from that, that sort of, uh, that sort of feeling. A light's where it wishes. I think of it, my first thought is of when I'm trying to sleep and my mind starts thinking of some nonsense that it makes no sense to think about. I want to have this ability. I'm going to tell you this ability that I really want to have, and that is this. When I start having a negative thought, I want to have the ability to just reflect and ask myself, am I making that shit up? Am I making that up? Am I telling a story right now? Or is this really a thing to worry about? You know, and we can think of um, all sorts of examples of this. Um, my daughter turned 16 recently, and she's scared of driving. She's telling herself stories about how how it's going to go wrong. And and I'm, it's not cuz she's not someone that wants to grow. Like she she has a job. She got a job when she was 14, but she's just telling stories about how how scary it is to drive a car. So she's continuing to ask people for rides to work because She's telling that story, and she's not realizing that she's telling a story. And I think um, we all get that way sometimes. A lot of people um, struggle with jealousy in relationships because they will start to tell themselves the story like, oh, this person is going to betray me, or whatever, right? Or, or, like, this other person that's in my partner's life is way better looking and more charming than me, and that's the story I'm telling, and so suddenly I'm I'm unhappy, and then I'm telling a story about 
the bad thing that's going to happen, right? And a lot of people get in that trap and they have trouble in not only their personal happiness, but that they can really, you can sabotage a relationship that way pretty easily, right? So I sort of think of that with stories we tell ourselves too. They can really get in our way. So what I want to develop is that state of mind where I can just start to have a thought like that and just think, oh, wait, am I being reasonable right now? Am I being reasonable right now? And we can, we can apply that to all sorts of things, I guess. It's sort of a gap. And that's what I want to have. And sometimes I have it. Um, but more often I don't. More often I will tell myself a story and then maybe, maybe later I'll realize, oh, I'm just, that's imaginary. That is, that is, um, I saw a quote once that says, worrying is stealing today's happiness. I, I, never mind. I butchered that. But it's like when we worry, sometimes we're stealing our joy and the thing we're worried about isn't even going to happen. So, so that sort of uh, direction this can go too. When we're talking about the mind going wherever it wants, well, although we want to be happy, the mind may not take us to happiness, right? Because the mind is very creative and can easily tell stories that are not going to make us happy. So that can be, that can get in our way. That can really get in our way. So, thirty-seven. Okay. <clears throat> I didn't see the asterisks. Yeah. Okay, that's okay. So. Far-ranging, solitary, incorporeal, and hidden is the mind. Those who restrain it will be freed from Mara's bonds. We only have a footnote here because he's translating. I feel like if you put a footnote, that means this is not the way people used to translate this. We only have a footnote here because he's translating this word as solitary. And it literally means walking or roaming alone. That's not that interesting. Um, and then the word that's hidden is lying in a cave. Okay, so, um, I'm going to read it again. Far-ranging, solitary, incorporeal, and hidden is the mind. Those who restrain it will be freed from Mara's bonds. So, again, Mara's bonds are, um, the afflictions that we are saddled with. Uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. Those are Mara's bonds. And if we can just control our mind, well, yeah, it's very clear to me that greed, hatred, and delusion all come from my mind, right? So if we can just restrain our mind, then those things are not going to hold us so tightly. I don't know if we can get rid of them, but they're not going to hold us so tightly. And that first part, uh, far-ranging, solitary, incorporeal, and hidden, is the mind. Well, I think that's just like, some aspect of our mind is always going to feel mysterious to us. Some aspect of it is, because we're using our mind to think about our mind. So, of course, it's going to feel mysterious. And I think uh, the Buddha's acknowledging that here. So, our mind is incorporeal. Um, 
I'm not certain if the Buddha even had uh, the knowledge that we have now about how much of thought is located in the brain. And I say how much of that's very intentionally because I think we're learning in the modern world. Um, it's not 100% in there, but I don't know that the Buddha even had that knowledge at all. So he's saying the mind is incorporeal. And I know that's certainly how some people think of it as like a a cloud inside us or a spirit or something. And he's, he's sort of uh, acknowledging that people think that way. For those who are unsteady of mind, who do not know true Dharma and whose serenity wavers, wisdom does not mature. For one who is awake, whose mind isn't overflowing, whose heart isn't afflicted, and who has abandoned both merit and demerit, fear does not exist. Fear does not exist. Wow. So, if we're unsteady of mind, if we're not doing meditation practice, if we're not training in these things, um, we're not going to get the results that that follows, right? Wisdom does not mature if your serenity wavers. So, He's even sort of touching very gently on the two styles of meditation, shamatha and vipassana. He's even, he's very gently leaning into that territory and saying, you need the serenity to get the wisdom. You need the serenity to get the wisdom. So, uh, shamatha style meditation is, it's sometimes called serenity meditation, but it is where we're just trying to sort of calm the minds down by having something to focus on. And Vipassana meditation, the other form, uh, which is supposed to be more wisdom activated, um, there's many different forms of that, but like reflecting on impermanence is one. And um, no noting the thoughts that arise in your mind is another one. Um, and you need, you need them both. You need, so we can't just do, you can't just, cultivate Buddhist wisdom without cultivating serenity. And I think some people would like to do that because sitting and meditating for a long time is sometimes a struggle, obviously. But he's, he's saying we need it. We need the whole package. And I think, I think that's true. So, uh, mind for one who is awake. Okay. That means seeing the world as it really is, whose mind isn't overflowing. That means sort of getting some some control of this of this crazy mind and whose heart isn't afflicted. I like that one a lot. Um, we've all been kicked in the heart, so we all have afflicted hearts. But what do you, what do you guys think has abandoned both merit and demerit means? I'm really interested if somebody has some reflection on how we could possibly abandon merit and demerit because I'm don't think he's telling us we can put down ethics. I don't think he's telling us that. So what is he telling us? I, I think they might be referring to kind of a, a non-attachment. Do the good deeds without thinking about who gets the credit. That, uh, that's what I think too. Do the good deeds without thinking about who gets the credit. Um, 
I, uh, in my, in my day job, I'm a union steward. And when I started this position, which is a job completely dedicated to helping people. Um, but when I started this position, one of the things that I was told, um, in training was if you're doing this to get the respect or the kudos, you should not do this because you're not going to get that. And I think, um, I think life is like that a lot. I think the really important things that we should do that we know we should do maybe aren't the things that make strangers love us, right? Maybe they aren't the things that people really like about us, but things that need to be done need to be done. So I I agree with that interpretation. I think has abandoned both merit and demerit. I think that means I don't I don't care. I'm going to do good and I'm not going to make sure people know I'm doing it. That is that is good advice. And when he says fear does not exist, I think he's talking about fears of things that aren't won't happen, right? Those fears that we create with our minds because again, we are afflicted. Knowing this body to be like a clay pot, establishing this mind like a fortress, one should battle Mara with the sword of insight, protecting what has been won, clinging to nothing. We're really going with the battle metaphors here, huh? So, um, I'm going to go ahead and go to the next one as well. All too soon this body will lie on the ground, cast aside, deprived of consciousness, like a useless scrap of wood. So, the body's like a clay pot, and it's going to become like a scrap of wood. Gross. Um, so, what can we say about the metaphor... Obviously, if we're thinking Mara as a metaphor, then we're not literally having a sword. But uh, sometimes these old teachings are like that. And they talk about like cutting away, severing the thread of your problems that, you know, that, that sort of imagery is, is not uncommon. So we're like a peaceful warrior. We're battling with our weaknesses, right? With the, we'll wield the sword of insight. And that's kind of, that's kind of cool. Um, but we're really uh, touching on impermanence here. This body's like a clay pot. It's going to be a useless scrap of wood. I think of... Um, I've heard that when someone dies sometimes um, and you the relatives go to the funeral home, sometimes corrupt... Corrupt... That's really judgmental. I don't want to use that word corrupt. Sometimes some very capitalist-minded funeral directors try to sell people like the most comfortable pillow for for the coffin. And it's more expensive because it's the most comfortable one. And I sort of think of that because I think that I'm a useless scrap of wood when I die. I don't want anything like that. I don't want my family to spend a lot of money on any aspect of my uh, exit, right? So 
I sort of think of that. So I really like that scrap of wood because that's sort of that sort of is how I think about it. That's and I know some people even though you know you're going to die someday, some people um are so still clinging to their body so much that like they're not organ donors. And I don't I don't judge someone like that, but I sort of think, well, where does that come from? Where where does that come from? Where would that come from if I was not wanting to be an organ donor? Where would that come from? And I guess I've I've heard a conspiracy theory that like if you're an organ donor, sometimes doctors just let you die. I don't think that's true. But the only other reason I could think of is well there's probably a whole host of reasons, but another reason I could think of is just, I'm really, I, I want to keep my, my parts. I want to keep my stuff. Right. And that's that, that as the reason would be, I think not a hundred percent rational because again, use a scrap of wood. I think we're better off if we accept aging, not to say we shouldn't always be working to better our minds and our bodies because I think we should, but um, I think we can learn to accept that this is this is going in a specific direction. Um, maybe we can slow it down, and maybe we can't. But we can't deny that it's going that way. That's is that depressing? Maybe it is. But a lot of these things are empowering and not depressing. So we'll go on. Um, this is really empowering. These last two verses, I think, are really empowering. And I just said we needed that, so that's good. Whatever an enemy may do to an enemy, or haters, one to another, far worse is the harm from one's wrongly directed mind. Neither mother nor father, nor any other relative, can do one as much good as one's own well-directed mind. So, we have a whole lot of power. And we we forget we do, but we do. And the Buddha is being, being very clear here and saying, like, you have more control of your mind than anyone else. You have more control of your mind than the outside circumstances. For good or ill, you have that. And so we need to just learn to seize that power because it's there. And so the Buddha, um, we're our own worst enemies. And the Buddha, sometimes I will hear teachings like, your teacher can't walk the path for you. Or, you know, things like that. Like, you have to do it. You have to take the steps yourself. Nobody can do it for you. They can only point the way. I like hearing that kind of teaching. And I think um, this is sort of, an extension of that. The Buddha is saying, he's not telling us, I'm, I can't do it for you. He's telling us, no one can do it for you. And your mind can cause you the most harm of anything. Um, and I wonder if we could... I'm imagining some person trying to play gotcha and trying to think of situations where people had bigger problems than the ones caused by their minds. Um, I'd find that 
uh, sort of debate obnoxious. I don't, I don't think a lot of good comes from that. It's just the Buddha's telling us we're powerful, and I, th I think we are. I think our mind has a lot of power in shaping our experience. Um, if I expect to have a bad day, I'm probably going to have a bad day, right? And I think that's that's the kind of power the Buddha's talking about here that we have, and we need to remember we have it because it can really help us. Oh my gosh, it's 8.30. Okay. I really love chapter 4, so we are going to go ahead and talk about chapter 4. And this, to me, I think the imagery and the metaphors in this chapter are some of the best in the whole book. Um, and uh, the Buddha is being very creative here because he's using flower metaphors for different meanings throughout this short chapter. And it really, um, I got an English degree in college and because I got an English degree in college, I, this kind of stuff really speaks to me because I've read a lot of it. And so, um, we're going to go through it now. So this is called chapter four flowers and it, um, I really like it. So who will master this world and the realms of Yama and the gods who will select a well-taught Dharma teaching as a person selects a flower? One in training will master this world and the realms of Yama and the gods. One in training will select a well-taught Dharma teaching as a skilled person selects a flower. So, teachings, um, teachings are like flowers. And we want to make sure we're, we're discerning. We want to make sure we're discerning. Um, Yama is... Uh, a death figure. So just picture the Grim Reaper and that's fine. Um, so when we're talking about mastering the world and the realms of Yama and the gods, that sounds huge. That sounds like a big achievement. And it's just reminding us, as we learned in the last chapter, how empowering this path is. Train your mind and follow the teachings and you will overcome what hinders you. And... Does that mean we're going to master death? No, I don't think so. But I think it means that fear of death, I hope, is not going to have such a hold on us. Such a hold on us. So that's that's what I think about there. I don't think of, like, you're going to master the realms of Yama means you're not going to die or things like that. But I think um, the Buddha's being sort of sort of hyperbolic here, but really it's a metaphor for the empowerment that this path can bring us. And I, uh, I have seen my growth in my own life from this. So I can, I can relate my own experience to that. That's not to say I don't feel like I've mastered death, but I do feel like I've been accomplishing a lot more of my goals and being a lot happier than I used to be. I do think that. So, so, Knowing this body is like foam, 
fully awake to its mirage-like nature, cutting off Mara's flowers, one goes unseen by the king of death. Death sweeps away the person obsessed with gathering flowers, as a great flood sweeps away a sleeping village. The person obsessed with gathering flowers, insatiable for sense pleasures, is under the sway of death. Um, so, one more. As, bee, as a bee gathers nectar and moves on without harming the flower, its color, or its fragrance, so, just so, should a sage walk through a village. So, flowers. We totally changed the metaphor. So first, flowers were Dharma teachings, and you try to pick the right ones. You try to make sure you're getting the teaching that you need. I didn't even, I didn't even say that. I got caught up with Yama. But... You want to select the teaching that you need. That's great. We want to be discerning. That's great. But now it's shifted. Now we're talking about Mara's flowers. Mara's flowers. The person obsessed with gathering flowers. That's who we don't want to be. So what is the person obsessed with gathering Mara's flowers? That is, if we're giving in to all our temptations. If we are just generally being unmindful in our lives. And, and especially if we're climbing over other people to satisfy our, our greed or whatever, that is collecting Mara's flowers. And so the person obsessed with gathering flowers, insatiable for sense pleasures under the sway of death. If we're insatiable for sense pleasures, we've got a problem. We've got a problem, Right. That I'm thinking of addiction. I'm thinking of addiction. And if we're thinking about our sense pleasures all the time and we're just giving into our pleasures all the time, I do think that makes death a little bit more scary because, well, at some point this train is going to stop. And I'm just trying to enjoy life all the time. And that last one about the sage. Walk through a village like a bee, a bee moving on gathering nectar. Um, I think we're called to do that. And by that I mean we're called to figure out how we can move through the world without causing harm, without bothering people, and without making enemies out of everything all the time. I think um, we, are, we are called to do that. I don't want to create drama for someone else, right? I don't want to be a source of gossip or um, be chasing after attention that maybe I don't need. I don't want to do those things. I want to rather move through the world not bothering anybody. Maybe just trying to do some good things and hopefully not causing that much harm. This is really powerful. Um, and this could be a bumper sticker, I think. It's really quotable. <clears throat> do not consider the faults of others or what they have or have not done. Consider rather what you yourself have or haven't done. I think there's motivational posters that say things like that. Like, I'm not competing with anybody else. I'm just trying to compete with myself or something, right? I'm trying to... That is... 
there's two ways to run a race, and one way is to run against the person that's going at the same time and try to be faster than them. But the other way is to just be faster than you were last time. And I think we can think about a lot of life that way. A lot of life that way. Um, it's really easy to think about the faults of others. And I think we get some joy out of it sometimes. And that's, that's fleeting and it gets in our way and it makes us, um, it creates disharmony with the world around us. And it can't be a good thing. It can't be a good thing to just reflect on other people's faults. Let's just be the best we can be. Obviously, if someone's harming you because of their faults, well, that's, that's something a little different. But just... Just seeing what other people are doing and judging them. I think I think the Buddha's telling us, take it easy. Just do the best you can. And gosh, I don't have time to worry about anyone else's path, even if I want to. I don't have time for that. I got to worry about what I'm doing. I think. So so I really like that. Do not consider the faults of others. Um, I got I got plenty of my own faults to pay attention to. And I'm sure you do too, because everyone does. So, um, we're going to talk about another flower. So, <clears throat> like a beautiful flower, brightly colored but lacking scent, so are well-spoken words fruitless when not carried out. And then the next one. Like a beautiful flower, brightly colored and with scent, so are well-spoken words fruitful when carried out. So, gosh, what's he saying? He's saying, he's just saying be genuine and don't be fake. That's, that's, that's how I take that. He's saying, don't make your actions match your words. Don't, uh. Don't. Speak really well about what you're going to do and then just not do it, right? Um, I, re I really like that. So we want to be, be authentic and be genuine. And I think um, maybe those aren't words that always get applied, get applied to Buddhism, but, but I, think, I think it really applies here. Be real. Be genuine. Um, the world needs more of that. The world needs more of that. We don't need to be fake about who we are. Rather, uh, we should, what we should be doing, I think is trying to elevate ourselves so that we don't have to lie about how good we are. Right. We want to, we want our actions to be elevated to where our words are. And really that can be self self-talk too. Um, if you've ever known someone who they are surprised when they're wrong or they're mad because someone's uh, suggesting that they're wrong because a person, some people hold on to this view like, well, that, I, I can't be wrong. That seems unlikely. How, how dare you? How dare you suggest that I don't know what I'm talking about? Um, 
if you've known anyone with that kind of attitude, like that's that's self talk. That person's talking to themselves, and they're telling themselves that they're great, and then not following up. Maybe that doesn't really work. So, um, here we go to some more flowers. Just as from a heap of flowers many garlands can be made, so you with your mortal life should do many things. So that's empowering. Um, I think it says we can we can accomplish more than we think we can. Um, that being said, like it seems random here. This is the only verse that uh, has this message about doing many different things. Um, and it just it just seems like it's dropped in there in between two different points, and that that's okay though. But we can we can almost always accomplish more than we think we can. I think that's true, and and we need to remind ourselves that when we think, well, especially when we think these practices, these teachings are too much for us. If we start to think like I'll never be a good meditator, whatever that is, or something along those lines, we need to remind ourselves, well, from a heap of flowers, many garlands can be made, therefore, I can do many different things. Skillful, many skillful things. So that means, I can do things and do them well. So, I do like the heap of flowers metaphor. Uh, But next, we're going to talk about the sense of flowers. The scent of flowers, sandalwood, jasmine, and rose bay, doesn't go against the wind. But the scent of a virtuous person does travel against the wind. It spreads in all directions. The scent of virtue is unsurpassed even by sandalwood, rose bay, water lily, and jasmine. So, scents, right? Oh my gosh, you smell like a good person, right? So, I think what he's trying to get at is this. If we're kind, if we practice compassion, if we're really virtuous, um, that's something that sort of follows you and spreads around. Like a scent. It spreads widely and it helps other people and people can sense it even. So, that that's what I think it is. I think it's just... If we're really, really trying to practice virtue and compassion, it makes, sort of, this is very heavy, it makes the world a better place, even in even in ways that we don't know. It makes the world a better place, even in ways that we don't know. So, if you're just going around being a pleasant, compassionate, kind person in your workplace... Um, your workplace is probably a little bit better because you're there. And that's the scent of virtue. That's the scent of, scent of virtue. And there's one more verse to this smelling part. Slight is the scent of rose bay or sandalwood, but the scent of the virtuous is supreme, drifting even to the gods. Um, we'll probably have a chance in another chapter to talk about... Um, 
the gods and if the Buddha believed in gods or not. But uh, the point is, he's telling us again and again and again, be a good person. Virtue is important. Be kind to others. Yeah, he feels he has to remind us that it's important. Um, and it is important. A lot of... Uh, I have a, I have another uh, very old Theravada Buddhist text, and it's called Manual of Insight. And um, I'm just telling you about it because it's really old, like this one. And it's like it's a very big book. It's like that that thick. And it um, so I opened this book, Manual of Insight, and I was like, yeah, I'm gonna get some really good uh, meditation advice. This is gonna be great. This is a beloved book, and it's a classic. And I open it, and like the first hundred pages are about practicing virtue, about showing kindness to others and causing as little harm as you can. And I think it's not an accident that that's the beginning and that it goes on and on because it's something we need to remember. It's something we need to remember. We're not doing this um, just to get better f better focus and be able to direct our thoughts more, but rather an aspect of this path is also virtue, kindness, and compassion, being a good person. And there's a lot of reasons why. Um, the one is, of course, if we're not going around harming people all the time, well, there's probably more harmony in our life and less chaos. Um, but also maybe we're not carrying around so much guilt if we're not harming people all the time. I think that's another way and we can just be out making the world a better place and that it makes everything else better for us. Thank you for listening and have a good day.